Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Warning. This podcast contains explicit language and details acts of violence. Listener discretion is advised. The streets were becoming more dangerous in Linwood. Deputies at the Linwood station began using their own gang-themed nickname for the station, LVS-25, or Linwood Vario Station 25. Vikings spray-painted walls and power poles around the city with the tag to mark what they saw as their turf. Two deputies reported seeing LVS-25 carved into patrol vehicles. The Vikings even adopted street lingo and started calling members of the gang homeboys, and longtime officers, OGs. Everyone at the Linwood station knew about the Vikings. Most people went along with it, because if you didn't, you could be killed. Racism was also on full display. A group of Vikings who covered the early morning shift called themselves OGCF, or an acronym for Original Gangster Crime Fighter, that later came to incorporate a Spanish-language slur for black people. The Los Angeles Times reported that the Linwood station had a, quote, map of Linwood in the shape of Africa, racist cartoons of black men, and a mock ticket to Africa on the wall. An anonymous Viking told the Long Beach Press-Telegram that, quote, it's the neighborhood, the environment, what we're up against that makes us Vikings. You have to have a strong ID out there because of the minority element. It's like a war. This is a tradition of violence, a history of deputy gangs inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. LA is not safe! LA is for the gangsters! LA is not safe! LA is for the gangsters! Lieutenant Roger Clark came face-to-face with a Viking while he was acting captain at the Crescenta Valley Station. I get a call from Bob Edmonds. You're going to get Deputy Armstrong as a prisoner. 
And I go, okay. Robert Armstrong was a deputy who shot pregnant 22-year-old DeLois Young twice in 1982. She was hit once in the chest and once in the stomach. One of the bullets hit her unborn son in the head, killing him. Now, all I knew is that Armstrong had been involved in a shooting, and he had been prosecuted, and then he gets sentenced to county time, not state prison. That's all I knew. Armstrong didn't serve his time in a county jail facility. Instead, he was housed at the Crescenta Valley Station as what's called a trustee contingent. Trustees are incarcerated people with records of good behavior who are selected to perform things like janitorial services at local stations. So I go through all the other trustees, you know, make sure I have a job for him. It's, he's going to paint the, he's gonna, he is going to run the crew that's going to paint the basement. I made a point of talking to him every single day, take his temperature. So eventually he tells me what happened. And I'm just stunned. And the story is, he starts out, you know, in the jail. And so, we're, and all he wanted to do is really be a good deputy. That's it. He goes to uh, Santa Catalina. Then he winds up in Linwood, and he gets recruited by a lieutenant who I know, Dennis Locum. I knew him, worked with him. Couldn't believe he did this, but he started this group of guys on early morning to go out and take care of business and gave him carte blanche. So they'll support you, anything you do. The group that Armstrong had been recruited into? The Linwood Vikings gang. Well, and it starts out stealing money from what they consider crooks, uh, fabricating police reports, using force, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And uh, bending all the rules. Well, as you know, if you want to get into a house, you, you got to have a search warrant, right? Or, or an emergency. So he gets transferred to Temple Station, which is a totally different division. And Temple's got a, a problem, a house that's selling narcotics, everybody knows it, and they turn it over to narcotics to handle. And the way you do it is you get an undercover, you, you know, mark money and do some buys and hit it with the search warrant and everybody goes to jail. And it wasn't moving fast enough for the guys, and they start complaining about it. Armstrong had an idea. And he's early mornings. They're sitting around complaining, and Armstrong says, well, hell, if we were in Linwood, we'd take care of this ourselves. And the guys say, well, what are you talking about? He says, well, watch this. So he goes, this is days of a payphone, you know, goes to a pay station, calls the station and says, I am anonymous. I live next door to, he gives the address. Then Armstrong started to lie. Something very, very terrible is going on down there. In fact, it sounds like someone's getting killed. You better send somebody. Then he walks back to the car. He says, we're going to get the call. The station received the call for service and routed it back to Armstrong's car. And call comes in, unknown trouble, da-da-da, there's the address. Now, his plan is, I'm going to the house. I'm going to kick that door, going to toss the house, and say that the dope, the money, the scales, and everything's on the uh, coffee table as we come in, and people are screaming for help when we arrive, just as we, as we reported to us. But when he gets there, it's all quiet, of course. He doesn't realize that the guy who's selling the dope takes his product and money away and leaves his pregnant girlfriend behind. 
and gives her a inoperable 22 caliber rifle to wave at guys to chase them away. So when Armstrong arrives, all quiet, right, goes to the door, tries to kick the door, doors reinforced, can't get through. She hears it, thinks it's a disgruntled customer, opens the door with the rifle, he shoots her. Roger was horrified. I hear this story. I said, Robert, tell me this is not true. Robert takes his leg, rolls up his sleeve, points to the tattoo. And I go, stay there. (laughs) Thank you very much. I run to my office, pick up the phone, call my my chain of command, Commander Hanky. So for God's sakes, get down here with a tape recorder and and internal affairs. You got to hear this story. At that point, I hear from him, the department knows all about it. So that was the one and only time I thought I was going to throw up in my entire career. Community residents were frequently brutalized by racist Vikings. There are literally hundreds of examples. On October 16, 1989, Demetrio Carrillo stopped to speak to a woman receiving a citation from a deputy sheriff. Deputies Elizabeth Smith and Anthony Campbell beat Carrillo, too, and called him racial slurs. He was charged with resisting arrest, but was acquitted at trial. February 11, 1990, six deputies arrested Fernando Martinez and shoved his head into the patrol vehicle window until it cracked and refused to give him medical attention. Two blocks away, Vikings dragged two men off of their front porch and beat them with flashlights. The men were initially allowed to leave after the beating, but after a neighbor complained, one was taken to the hospital and arrested. Four days later, February 15th, four black men gathered at an auto shop were beaten by Vikings. The deputies also tore apart the shop and held guns to the heads of two of the men. On March 1st, the Vikings carried out six botched raids. Several Latina families, including young children, elderly, and disabled people, were held at gunpoint. Several people were taken into custody and beaten. Two groups of Vikings unlawfully detained a Latina family of seven on March 24, 1990. One pregnant woman was assaulted, and an 82-year-old grandmother was held at gunpoint as she lay in bed. On April 13th, Vikings arrested Raul Gonzalez for attempted robbery and beat him, then imprisoned him for several days. The next day, a Viking arrested Jesse Melendrez and beat him in the back of their patrol car while he was handcuffed. Then they brought Melendrez inside of their station, handcuffed him to a swivel chair, and continued beating him. Fernando Martinez, whose head was shoved into the patrol car window, was arrested again on April 15, 1990, and driven recklessly while handcuffed, causing his head to smash into the metal partition separating the front and back seats of the vehicle. Once Martinez arrived at the station, deputies beat, choked, and kicked him. Two days later, Salvador Preciado and Rafael Ochoa were arrested and beaten. One deputy shoved a loaded revolver into Ochoa's mouth and told him, quote, Every time you see us, we are going to fuck with you. And just three days later, nine deputies stopped Preciado and Ochoa again. Preciado was kept in a dark cell and beaten, while Ochoa's house was raided without a warrant. 
Two weeks later, Vikings attacked Darren Thomas, Michael Sterling, Kevin Marshall, and William Scott, all black, while they stood in their yard. Deputies drove recklessly on the way to the station, causing the men to fall on the vehicle's hard surfaces. Once they arrived, they were taken to a trailer in the station's parking lot used by deputies assigned to the gangs and beaten. Deputies used racial slurs as they continually pummeled the men. Darren Thomas was kicked in the face, choked into unconsciousness twice, and electrocuted with a taser. One deputy held a shotgun to Darren's head. Darren was charged with battery on an officer and prosecuted, despite the fact that he was compliant and did nothing wrong. One year later, the charges were dismissed in a mistrial. On May 5, 1990, deputies shot and killed 15-year-old Lawrence Johnson. One week later, two Viking associates opened fire on an unarmed Tracy Batts, who survived the shooting. A few weeks later, deputies tried to kill Tracy again. They shot him in the right leg and set an attack dog on the injury. Later that month, Vikings beat Ron Dalton, Eric Jones, and Marcelo Gonzalez. One of the deputies shoved a loaded revolver into Dalton's mouth and threatened to blow his head off. Another deputy put a gun to Gonzalez's head and pulled the trigger, but the gun did not fire. On May 26, 1990, LZ Coleman was chased down and shot by Deputy Paul Archambault, who falsified evidence in the investigation of the incident. Coleman was initially charged with brandishing a gun, but acquitted. The Vikings and their brutal style of policing were co-signed by the deputies' union. The August 1990 issue of the Association of Los Angeles Deputy Sheriffs printed a photo of three Linwood Vikings flashing the Viking hand sign. Deputies who did not conform were punished. Lieutenant Walker Force was frequently harassed by the Vikings. In 1985, Deputy Kathy Kay recorded his personal car as stolen into a county computer and said the driver of the vehicle was armed and dangerous, according to court documents. Kay was charged with making a false criminal report and ultimately acquitted. During the trial, Force testified that he received prank phone calls, had the fender kicked off his car, and received a Valentine's Day gift with a dead rat inside. He also said that two deputies tried to run him down in their car. In a separate police report, Force wrote that two hearses were dispatched to his house at 3 a.m. Captain Burt Cueva publicly pledged to phase out the Viking symbol when he arrived at the Linwood station in 1989. He started by removing the Viking flag hanging inside and replaced it with a flag representing the city of Linwood. But the new flag was promptly stolen. Other supervisory employees were harassed by Vikings. Sergeant Pippin, a black man later inked as a Viking, received a loaded handgun in the mail, rigged to fire when the package opened. Sergeant Stan White allegedly had dead dogs placed in the back of his car, animal feces placed under the hood of his car, cow tongues hung in his locker, and guns pulled on him. When White was relocated outside of the Linwood station, one Viking bragged to reporter Sabrina Steele for the Press-Telegram that the gang had, quote, ran him out. Deputy Mike Osborne's wife, Deputy Aurora Alonso Malato, filed a damage claim against L.A. County and the Sheriff's Department, saying she was harassed and forced out after reporting that her training officer, Jeffrey Jones, planted narcotics on Black and Latina suspects. 
Jones was charged with falsifying police reports and pled no contest. The month of Jones's arraignment, someone shot at Mulatto and Osborne's home just before midnight while their kids were sleeping in the rear bedrooms. Osborne told the Los Angeles Times he suspected the involvement of renegade sheriff's deputies. Cueva ordered the transfer of alleged Vikings, and four sued him for discrimination. Clifford Yates, a deputy at the Linwood Station during this time, wrote about it in his book Deputy, 35 Years as a Deputy Sheriff from Upstate New York to L.A. He says, quote, Five deputies, myself included, were advised that we were being transferred out of the station. We sued to stop the transfers. That suit was eventually dismissed. Yates says that they were eventually transferred to, quote, choice assignments, and that he was promoted to sergeant. He declined to be on this podcast, but describes his time in law enforcement as, quote, hunting for humans. It's a lot of fun. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. The people of Linwood were tired of the continued abuse and looked for help. Two families called up attorney George Denny at the Police Misconduct Lawyers Referral Service. David Lynn heard about it later that day. He said, David, I got two cases today, both out of Linwood. One was the beating of Lloyd Polk, where they broke both of his arms and arrested him. 21-year-old Lloyd Polk, or Stranger, was a member of the local street gang Young Crowd and had already achieved the status of an OG. He wasn't active in the streets anymore. He was working full-time and had settled down with his girlfriend, who was expecting their first child. He was beaten by two deputies in an alley and imprisoned for 17 days. Private investigator David Lynn went into the jail to meet him. And with Lloyd Polk, um, I went to jail, we got a court order, I photographed him, interviewed him, canvassed the neighborhood, and I found this elderly woman who lived across the alley where the beating happened. And she said she heard a noise outside and she went to the window 
and there was a street lamp in the alley, and she saw, she thought, gang members beating this other guy. She said, told her daughter, call the police, the gangs are, are beating somebody out in the alley, call the police. And then she said, uh, one of the guys turned and she saw the glint of his badge from the light, and she goes, oh my God, it is the devil's. That wasn't the only awful beating. The other one was William Leonard, a legally blind guy collecting cardboard in an alley. They said, put up your hand. One yelled, put up your hands. Get on your knees. Get on the ground. Put up your hands. Put your hands behind your head. Just shouting different orders at him. And he's like, oh, he didn't know what to do. And so they saw a leather sheath and somebody yelled gun. And they all opened up on him, shot 32 times. They did like a horseshoe around him. Um, I don't remember how many deputies, but I remember most of them were Vikings. And this guy's daughter witnessed it. She was right there. The charges against Lloyd Polk were dismissed at a preliminary hearing, and he was ready to take the Vikings down. He teamed up with David Lynn to organize community members who had been victimized by the Linwood Vikings. And he was the kind of guy, he knew the leadership of all the other gangs. The Linwood Mob, uh, Tortilla Flats, um, the different gangs. So he uh, told the other gamer, this guy's cool. Listen to what he has to say. So he kind of gave me a pass to, uh, to go into these other neighborhoods, and they already knew who I was, and they just started lining up telling me their stories. So, um, and then people in Linwood were young crowds territory, uh, people who were not gang members, kids that were in high school, no criminal offense, who were beaten shot. I think in total we had 120 victims. All happening within a three-month period. So it was just the Wild West. The Vikings were on a rampage. And we just happened to come at the right time to, to witness it right in the middle of it. People just started uh, lining up to hear that I was uh, in one house doing an interview and they'd literally start lining up the door to tell me their stories. In September of 1990, the lawyers at PMLRS compiled the accounts of abuse and filed a class-action civil rights suit in federal court. The press was mostly skeptical of the lawsuit, but reporter Sabrina Steele at the Long Beach Press-Telegram took notice. She went on to publish several articles detailing the Vikings' abuse of other deputies. David Lynn also published an op-ed in the paper comparing the Vikings' antics to his time as a Marine in Vietnam. Because about one-third of the plaintiffs were members of local street gangs that were at war, Lloyd Polk organized a meeting with representatives from each set to work out a truce in December of 1990. The talks were held at David Lynn's house and were a success, but the night was quickly ruined. When Lloyd Polk got back to his house, a car drove by and opened fire. Witnesses ran to a deputy sitting around the corner with his lights off. The deputy got out of the car, walked back to it, and sat there. Lloyd died that night. At Lloyd's funeral, David Lynn received a tip about the murder from inside the department itself. Anitra Haley was a sheriff's explorer at the time. The explorer program is billed as a career development for young adults. Haley said that she overheard deputies Lloyd Luna and Jason Mann plotting to kill Polk in a drive-by shooting. David interviewed her over a dozen times, and her story never changed. He was unsure of what to do next, 
so the evidence was handed over to the FBI. That nearly derailed the lawsuit. After talking to FBI agents, Haley recanted. The sheriff's department charged that David had forced her into implicating the deputies. The FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office began a grand jury investigation into David Lynn, which turned up nothing. Gloria Clark, Polk's common-law mother-in-law, told reporters that Haley recanted her story because investigators threatened to send her to prison for 26 years if any deputies were convicted. She pleaded guilty for charges of providing false information to federal investigators and was sentenced to probation. The lawyers pursuing the federal case released previously sealed audio tapes and transcripts of Lynn's interviews with Haley, which corroborated his account. On them, Haley says she is frustrated that her FBI handler ruined attempts to secretly record incriminating statements from one of the deputies involved in the shooting. She also told David that that same FBI agent was sexually harassing her. The attorneys also issued a statement about the investigation, saying it was a means to intimidate witnesses and discredit their case. They said David Lynn's, quote, only crime was naivety, believing that the FBI would act in good faith on information that Los Angeles Sheriff's deputies plotted and carried out the shooting of a civil rights plaintiff. The Vikings continued to terrorize local families. You start hearing things from the community about like, you know, hey, if something ever happens, like don't call the cops. That's Francisco Frankie Carrillo. Today, he's a father of three and commissioner for the Los Angeles County Democratic Party. But just a few years ago, his life was very different. I try to come across as a regular guy, but the truth is that I was, um, I was in prison. I'm an exoneree, which basically means that I was wrongfully convicted. Frankie served more than 20 years for a murder he did not commit. In 1991, he was a 16-year-old high school student. Frankie wasn't in a gang, but he was friends with people who were. He was even related to a few. Specifically, the Young Crowd Gang, a mostly Latina group in the Linwood area. Being friendly with Young Crowd meant being stabbed, shaken down, and profiled by police. It was a picture that was snapped during a, um, just like a random interaction with the deputy. And, um, you know, there we were, right? Our, our BMXs through Ham Park, which is no longer around. And, um, you know, we're riding, the cop sort of pulls on the, on the pathway and sort of he slows down, we slow down. And next thing we know, you're just you're talking to a cop. And um, and it went from like, you know, some basic just, you know, police tactics about, hey, you know, where do you guys live? Uh, you know, you have a girlfriend. You know, people are laughing. You know, he's, you know, building trust, obviously, right? And no one's, no one's, I mean, I'm not feeling like, oh, shit, like, let's get out of here. Let's run. We just, no, no one's committed a crime. So everyone's just like, we're just talking to a cop. And of course, the, the final question is like, do you mind if I take your picture to the group? And I, you know, I'm sure we all looked at each other like, yeah, I guess. Like, you're the cop. Why are you, why are you asking permission, basically, right? And so the guy gets out of, his, out of the driver's seat and he goes into the trunk and, you know, this is Polaroid time. He didn't know it then, but that photo would go on to change Frankie's life for the worse. 15-year-old Damien Sarpy was like Frankie. High school kid, raised in Linwood, too. He was acquainted with a gang, the predominantly black neighborhood Crips. That gang was in conflict with Frankie's friends and the Young Crowd gang. On January 18th, Damien was hanging out in front of his house with a few friends, 
Around 7 p.m., a car filled with Latino men drove by. Donald Sarpy, Damien's father, came out and asked the group to head inside. Moments later, the car came back and circled the block. A person in the car yelled out something like, fuck and crowd, and fired shots. Donald was struck and died. The teenage boys who witnessed the shooting were badly shaken up, but cooperated with deputies. They were initially interviewed by telephone, but couldn't remember many details. They agreed to go down to the Linwood station around 1 a.m. for another round of interviews. One of the teens, Scott Turner, was interviewed by Deputy Craig Ditch, a member of Linwood's Operation Safe Streets, the gang enforcement unit. Ditch was familiar with Turner. He'd provided the deputy with information in the past. Ditch handed the teenager a book filled with photographs of potential young crowd members. One of those photos, the Polaroid of Frankie. And so that picture ultimately ended up in in a photo lineup that was used in an investigation against me. As Turner looked at the photos, Ditch provided commentary on each person. When Frankie's picture came up, Ditch told Turner that he was probably the shooter, according to depositions. Six days later, Frankie was arrested for the murder of Donald Sarpy. I remember, you know, watching, I felt like I was watching The Simpsons or something. I was just watching TV and I fell asleep on the couch and I was awakened by this like loud bang, like the door was like right by my right by me and I felt like the whole house was like shaking you know it was, and they couldn't get in I'm like what the hell's going on so I, I looked in the window and it was sure enough it's the sheriff's department and they're announcing sheriff's department let us in whatever and so I opened the door I am like I felt like you know why well, the hell I opened the door but I opened the door and they stormed in and what I remember was like the guy leading the charge had a had a like a VHS camcorder and he walked in he started recording you know and my dad came out of his room and he and I were on the floor, in the living room floor. And um, my dad looks at me like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. And so they ransacked the entire entire place. And at the very end, they, they handcuffed me. Frankie had an alibi for the day of the shooting. Because of uh, the dynamics of my life, it was um, my father, myself, and my little brother. So, you know, that had been going on for the last three or four years or longer. You know, I get home and I'm, I'm doing laundry or I'm, you know, folding clothes or I'm, you know, just doing stuff that like, you know, um, maybe society doesn't think a, a young brown boy is going to be doing because like, that's not what they do. That's very stereotypical, but that, that's what was happening. And I say it because it was used against me at, in court. Like, yeah, come on, you don't believe this guy was doing that that day. Called my mom, was asking for a ride. Um, ultimately, I, I didn't leave the house until... Um, my dad took me to work with him the following day so we went to bed fairly early but that was it it was like a very simple like day at home but the sheriff's department and the district attorney would not let up on their version of it I was in Linwood involved in the drive-by shooting that ultimately uh, ended in, in Donald Sarpy's death the day of my arrest the crime happened six days prior so there's no confusion about the previous Friday where were you the, this previous Friday like well I was at home no no you weren't you know so we got you of the five teen witnesses, Turner was the only one who saw the picture of Frankie. But by the time they got to court, everyone identified him as the killer. The first trial ended with a hung jury. Before the second, Turner recanted and told prosecutors that his identification of Frankie was a mistake. He was no longer willing to testify against him. In June 1992, 
Turner was in custody for an unrelated issue and transported to court from a juvenile detention center. Frankie approached him in the holding tank. There I was waiting for the, the, the chain, the, the, the bus to arrive. And I'm sitting down on the bench and I look over and I'm like, is that fucking Scott Turner right there? And I'm like, no, that can't be him. He's, he, was, he happened to either be there before I, I walked in. And his head's down, and I'm like, oh my God, it's him. And I and I and I'm like, without even thinking about it, I just like went over and I sat right next to him. And I said, Hey, are you Scott? And he ignored me. I'm like, hey, are you Scott Turner? And he looks at me, he's like, Man, you know, like, man, I'm I'm Leroy Jones, man. What are you like? He was like completely like trying to scare me off, like, no, nah, man, that that's no, like that, no. And I'm like, no, nah, no. Nah. So I don't, I'm not trying to make a big, you know, like he's getting a little bit loud. I don't want to trigger anybody else to go, hey, what are you guys arguing about? Or, you know, black, brown boys, you know, getting a little loud here. And and he sees that I'm not like, one, I'm not trying to fight him. I'm not like attacking him, which probably would be like the normal thing to do. Like, here's the witness attack, you know, whatever. I'm just like, here's two, two 18 year old boys trying to like figure out this mess that these adults had put us in. And he said, no, 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 yeah, it's me, man. I'm Scott, like, it's it's me, man. And before I can, like, you know, he just continues and says, I'm going to fix this, man. They, they made me lie. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to come to court. I didn't want to, they forced me. So you can only imagine, so now I'm, I'm, I'm in custody for over a year and a half at this point. And I'm like, please, like, you know, I don't know how, what, your, what plan you have, but like, tell someone, man, that you're, you're, you've lied. Frankie heard Turner making good on his word while he was still in the tank. And there's like a little gap underneath my door and I can hear some, some commotion and I, and I, you know, get myself down on that floor and I can hear um, the DA, Miriam Escalante. And she's like, don't be afraid, Scotty. Like, like, no, no. Like, you know, like, like you're basically gonna fuck my case up. Like, what are you doing? You know? And you can hear him saying like, nope, I'm not like, that's it. I'm not playing along anymore. So there's like this whole thing and I'm just in my, you can only imagine I'm like, you know, super happy. Like the guy was doing the right thing. Turner's honesty didn't help. They spun that like, oh, the guy's scared, you know, Frankie threatened him and all this stuff. So he he did testify that it wasn't me, that he had he had been lying all along. But by this point, there was these other five boys that they were still using, you know, and one happened to be the victim's son, Damien. And so um, they lost one, they lost a star, but they had this whole team of guys still willing to testify against me. David Lynn was at the courthouse that day. Frankie's attorney asked that Lynn accompany him to observe. In a deposition, Lynn stated that when Turner recanted his prior testimony, Ditch responded by threatening him. Ditch said, quote, no more breaks if you get arrested in Linwood. David Lynn also testified that as he and Ditch left the holding area, Ditch stated, quote, I'll tune him up in reference to Turner, meaning he would beat him. Even though Ditch was a gang detective, he was in a gang himself. Deputy Ditch was very eager to admit that he was a Viking. And you know, there was no like, no, I've never heard of the Vikings. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, yeah, I'm a Viking. Like, proud of it. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. 
When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. The Vikings' violence on the streets continued. On May 7, 1995, 24-year-old José Nieves was shot in the back during a botched raid. Nieves was a witness to one of the incidents documented in the federal lawsuit. There were three or four other experienced uh, civil rights lawyers, lawyers that Hugh had trained and brought along over the years after the establishment of the uh, police Misconduct Lawyer Referral Service. Carol and her team were up against highly paid private attorneys representing L.A. County. And they embarked on a strategy of trying to bury us in paper. And they came close. I mean, the paper was unbelievable. Of course, they were earning big dollars during all of this. We rented a huge room uh, with shelves, with notebooks, you know, four walls of notebooks of paper. Carol was in charge of discovery for the entire case. It involved me receiving it and distributing it to the various lawyers. The way we had organized ourselves was each lawyer would take several, one or more clients and represent them. And if there was a criminal case, they'd do the criminal case, and then they would represent them in the civil rights case. And these lawyers, most of them, except for this core group, had never done this before. And they were very lax about deadlines. I was constantly on the phone multiple times for each of these lawyers, for each of their clients, for each set of discovery, for every deposition. You have to do this, you have to get this in, you have to have your client sign it. It was just, it was a nightmare. It was really a nightmare. Um, and they would miss deadlines, and we would get sanctioned, and we had no money. It got to the point where I didn't want to go into the office because there would be a ream of paper sitting on my desk. 
It was the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. I have never been so depressed for so long. The odds seem stacked against the PMLRS team in the courtroom. We had a, uh, a magistrate judge who seemed to be dazzled by defense counsel. Uh, she was this pretty blonde woman, and she'd go in court and twinkle at him. And he would sanction our negligent failure to comply by the correct date and ignore their deliberate refusal to have someone show up for a deposition. So, you know, it was very, very frustrating. It was very, very frustrating. Despite the difficulties, the plaintiff attorneys asked for big changes to be made to the sheriff's department in their lawsuit in an injunction. The judge that was assigned to the case, Terry Hatter, seemed open to hear what they had to say. Hatter was black, from the south side of Chicago, and no stranger to police misconduct. One of the things, and this was Hugh's idea, was to have a monitor appointed to oversee the daily operations of the sheriff department. We were attacking the Vikings, and Hatter made a finding that they were a neo-Nazi white supremacist group which they were. Hatter granted the injunction, and L.A. County and its attorneys were not happy. Then-Sheriff Sherman Block told the Los Angeles Times Hatter's assessment of the Vikings was, quote, irrational and wrong. The county appealed, and the injunction was reversed at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. We were really disappointed and uh, felt that we had had a very solid uh, case So at that point, we just proceeded on with the individual cases, litigating the individual cases, doing depositions, defending depositions, serving discovery requests, responding to discovery requests, getting sanctioned every time one of our lawyers would blow a deadline. The case was only a class action because of the injunction. Now the Linwood team had to move forward with the cases individually. The reversal also meant that all of the evidence of the racist Vikings deputy gang could not be used at trial. You know, uh, it was an opportunity to educate the community. This case was being watched nationwide, you know. And so to be deprived of that opportunity to expose this, it had never been exposed before. So, yeah, that was a big blow. Carol took over as the lead counsel. She says that she loved doing the trials, but there were a few weird things that happened during the litigation. Shortly before the trial was supposed to start, I came into the office one day, and the phones weren't ringing. I mean, the phones were always ringing. I mean, it was a busy office. I mean, we we had a practice going on Besides Linwood, um, and the phones weren't ringing, like about 10 o'clock or so, I didn't notice. And so I pick up the phone, and there's no dial tone. So I went to one of our office mates' phone and called the phone company. What's going on? And the woman said, you called us and told us to disconnect the phones because you were going to be in Europe for several months. And 
supposedly we had a password. I says, well, I'm sure you asked for a password. Um, no, so there won't be a reconnection fee. I don't know who did that. I don't know how why that happened. Who would do that other than these mean people? Carol won the first trial, which was the case of Darren Thomas and his friends. The jury awarded the men $611,000. The county chose to settle the remaining cases in 1996. $7.5 million, which is worth about double today, was awarded to 80 plaintiffs. $1.5 million was earmarked for the, quote, special training of deputies. The sheriff's department was also required to have a computerized use-of-force tracking system up and running by the following March to identify bad deputies. The settlement also extended the term of special counsel Merrick Bob, who monitored the department for the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. County attorneys estimated that if the case went to trial, fees and damages could go up to $18.9 million. Sheriff Sherman Block told the L.A. Times that the settlement was partly, quote, a business decision. County supervisors echoed that sentiment. Gloria Molina of the 1st District said, quote, This was a terrible situation, but I think the sheriff can say we no longer have that situation going on. Supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky of District 3 said that the settlement was, quote, better than rolling the dice and going to court and risking an outcome that's worse. Just like Sheriff Alex Villanueva after him, Sheriff Block said that he believed the Vikings were a social organization and there is no proof they took action against people of color. He also said he didn't believe the group existed anymore. You know, that's typical. They're not going to come clean with actual feelings about there might be something wrong, you know, that actually maybe we need to do something to correct this. I didn't expect that. And him saying that is just living up to expectations, living down to expectations. Yeah, you just have to shrug this stuff off. It's just predictable. The Los Angeles Times and the media, I don't know if they put those words in his mouth or if the words came from the sheriffs originally. Block Block used to call them social groups. But the LA Times would always report them as cliques. They are not cliques. That's such a harmless euphemism. Um, They're gangs. They're violent people and they do harm. They're territorial, and they're power-hungry, and they abuse their power. Why does no one seem to want to take accountability for this issue? Probably a couple of things. One is it reveals uh, the weakness and ineptness of leadership, the administration, and also possibly because of the power behind these gangs. Frankie Carrillo was eventually convicted of murder, as well as multiple counts of attempted murder. They sentenced me uh, 25 years to life, plus a five-year gang enhancement for the murder of Donald Sarpy, and and then a consecutive uh, six life sentences for all the other witnesses who were there, the the victims slash witnesses who testified against me. So... It was a total of, I guess, 30 years plus seven life sentences that ran uh, concurrent. So you had to sort of finish one 
before you started the other one. David Lynn wasn't convinced and kept hunting for details about the real killer of Donald Sarpy. He got his answer from a Young Crowd gang member. In a deposition, David said he found Oscar Rodriguez at home one afternoon in December 1992. David asked Rodriguez to talk to him about Frankie's case, and the two of them headed off in David's car to the crime scene. On that drive, Rodriguez confessed to the murder and said he would testify to such. The next day, David took Rodriguez to court. Rodriguez's previous attorney told the court that Frankie was not present during the murder. The judge denied a proposed delayal of the sentencing. Frankie received one life sentence and a second sentence of 30 years to life to run consecutively, reducing his chances of parole to zero. When I was in Folsom prison, I, I had reached a point where I felt that I had done everything that I can do. Like I had, I had reached whatever, whatever, whoever can write, whatever petition I can, you know, submit. All the screaming and kicking and so on was like, I, I was like, what else? What, what do I do next? For 15 years, Frankie insisted on his innocence and wrote letters to private attorneys, the ACLU of Southern California, the California Office of the Inspector General, and the Innocence Projects in California and New York. It took two decades, but he eventually got help. Tony Carter, who was a teacher at Folsom Prison, I, you know, I give her a lot of credit. And what had happened was that Tony had been a, a teacher there for 20 years. And it was her time for her time to retire. I'm like stumbling, right? I'm like, and she's like, yeah, like, I'm like, you know, Tony, you, you know, you've proofread my letters, you know, my, my plight. Um, would you do me a favor, you know, now that you're retired, if you come across a lawyer, a reporter, anyone who you think would be interested in my story, would you like just share it with them? And lo and behold, about six months after the conversation uh, in Sacramento County or in Sacramento near where Folsom Prison is, she happened to be at an event, and at that event, um, it became like Q&A time, and there was a woman there who stood up and said, you know, uh, my name is Ellen Eggers, I'm a lawyer, and so Tony, who's in the room, says, oh, lawyer, uh-huh. So at some point, they they uh, chatted, and Tony was like, hey, you know, um, like, there's this guy that I know, you know, it's you know, this my former, you know, uh, clerk, whatever, at Folsom Prison. Like, do you mind if I if I share some information with you about his case? And um, long story short, Ellen agreed, and so she she like was intrigued with maybe the fact that like as a former staff member was sort of vouching for me was maybe the initial sort of wave of like, yeah, maybe I should look into this. Ellen Eggers and her team spent the next five years of their spare time working on Carrillo's case. They were trying to get Frankie a writ of habeas corpus, a process that allows incarcerated people to report unlawful imprisonment. At Frankie's habeas hearing, five out of the six witnesses recanted their original testimony, while the sixth invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. After a week-long evidentiary hearing, Frankie's request was granted, and his sentence was vacated. The L.A. District Attorney's Office did not appeal the ruling, nor did they attempt to refile charges. Frankie Carrillo was released from custody on March 6, 2011, after over 20 years of incarceration, based on a lie. But the Vikings' war on the residents of Linwood wasn't over. The lawsuit wasn't going to stop them. The damages didn't change their salaries, and all of them had been cleared for misconduct. Several had actually been promoted, 
and we're in a perfect position to train the next generation of deputy gangs. That's coming up next week. Police, I'm a fucking hood trophy. Better keep a pistol in the field with the shit. Keep a automatic weapon, I ain't going for shit. This is for the hood. You've been listening to A Tradition of Violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Hosted and executive produced by Cerise Castle, music by Yellow Hill and Steels. For breaking news and updates on deputy gangs, follow at LASD Gangs on social media. To support Cerise's reporting and for exclusive bonus content, subscribe to the LASD Gangs Patreon. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.